This is Kip Speak, a podcast created as a platform to foster conversation around the future of the legal industry and encourage young professionals to engage with leading innovators from across the UK. Hi, I'm Bernie. Welcome to Kip Speak. Today we invite Stephen Allen, Head of Digital and Innovation at Hogan Levels. In our conversation, we discuss coding, the power of data, and the importance of collaboration. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Stephen. Stephen, welcome to Kipspeak. I'm very pleased to be here. Great. Let's dive straight in. So you've coined the phrase, the economics of collaboration. Could you tell us more about what it is and why it's important? Yeah, sure. Um, And in fact, we've just coined the phrase, the collaboration coefficient. So I'll start with with the economics of, and I'll move on to the coefficient. Um, Put simply the needs of the market now are too complex for any one organisation to be able to deliver a complete solution. Mm. So if I look back 20 years um, and you wanted to do, you know, imagine uh, the analogy of a law firm being an orchestral organisation, the law firm would write the symphony, they would Mm. play all of the parts, they would conduct it. Now it's far more complex than that. The needs... Uh, you have around technology, data science, uh, thinking differently, you know, different delivery models actually require a whole bunch of skills that law firms and actually no organisation possesses. Mm. So if you can bring back, bring together those parts, it, it's, it's better for the market as a whole. Mm. The collaboration coefficient kind of goes beyond that and it says, well, how do you collaborate? Right. Uh, and, and again, this is a mathematics thing. So if you think about uh, how people normally collaborate, they're very clear lines. They say, well, I'll do X and you do Y. Uh, you create two parallel lines. The problem with parallel lines is that they never intersect. Mm. Uh, the failure to intersect causes two issues. Number one is there's always a gap. And, and mm. by virtue of there being a gap, there's never a point at which you've got a clean handover between one and the mm. other. So that model just doesn't work, but that's how 90% of the world tries to collaborate. Mm. Where you see uh, a collaboration coefficient work most commonly is where you get single point solutions. So let's just imagine in legal, we're using a piece of legal tech. Mm -hmm. For that one instance, that one element of a delivery model, you need that piece of technology. There's a perfect intersection there. Mm. The problem is it's one thing. Uh, The lines cross to really move collaboration forward, you actually need to eradicate the lines. Something more fuzzy. You need fuzzy, <laughs> absolutely. You need to exist in a fuzzy. And you need to have two things there. First of all, you need to trust the other organisation. And then you need to get around what I call organisational territorialism. You need to be comfortable in saying, okay, on this thing, we'll do task A, B and C. But on the next thing, you may do B and C for us. And that's difficult because everyone tries to win, but actually, for me to win, you don't necessarily have to lose. Mm. So it's it's the, the reason why why this is important is to achieve all the big challenges that are coming forward in our industry. No one organisation, no one type of person mm. can help deliver it. But to do that, you need to you need to exist in the fuzzy. Mm. Do, do you think that it's, it's difficult to have kind of guide a law firm to thinking in that sort of way because I think for a long time maybe law firms want to be that one-stop shop and they want to be that one place where clients can come to um, and there is that sort of 
zero-sum mentality where, you know, you may be thinking, why not try and do it yourself? Why not acquire, perhaps, the, these legal tech firms? Or, yeah, I mean, that's, what a, do you think? that's a great question, and you're absolutely correct. For a large number of years, and there are still law firms that say, no, no, we've built our own. We've built our own solution. Um, and it is difficult for people to understand that sometimes to get something, you have to give something. Mm. Uh, so that's a difficult piece. I think what you have to do is you have to look at what's our core capability. So if you look at Hogan Lovells, what's our core capability? One is we understand the client need. Mm. Secondly, we're great lawyers. So if we are understanding and helping decipher what the client needs, and we then understand how to deliver the legals, the other bits that are required, and you know sometimes that can be 50% of the overall solution, mm. um, are they in our core competencies? You know, are we the best people to do that? Um, I think the other thing around building your own, and I think this is becoming increasingly true, is, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons, we do not have limitless amounts of investment capital mm. for research and development. Uh, so our ability to invest to create really cutting-edge projects, products, compared to legal tech companies is limited. Mm. I think the second challenge, of course, is that actually the technology evolves. You know, and if you spend all of your money developing X and then in five years' time X is obsolete because mm. Y's come along, it kind of it adds a problem. And if, if as a, a law a law firm you can collaborate with the best and the latest, mm. you're going back to that point of addressing all your client needs. And that sounds uh, like a more sustainable model for the long term as well. You mentioned there, just going back, you mentioned um, there isn't one type of person, one specific entity. So you recently, you know, you developed this bionic lawyer project. Could you tell us what that is and perhaps what young professionals can do to become a, a bionic lawyer? Yeah, so, so the good news for young professionals is, number one, you don't need to be bionic. <laughs> and number two is you don't even need to be what we classically call a lawyer. Sure. So our view is that anyone who works in legal is a lawyer just like anyone who works in medicine is a medic, regardless of whether you're a doctor, a nurse, a care assistant, whatever. And, and, and we feel that there is a challenge in the industry at the moment about the nomenclature of lawyers to non-lawyers. It's, mm. it's kind of unhelpful. It's a term of art, not a term of science. So a solicitor is a solicitor. Quite rightly, it's a recognised qualification. You're called a solicitor. Same with a barrister. But actually... Is it right that we, we, we kind of class people in an organisation as those in the in crowd and those not? So mm. that's the first thing about the Barnick Lawyers, is about inclusivity of everybody we need to bring together. The second challenge we think is that uh, there is a lack of reference material, partly because actually 20, 30 years ago, legal was, whilst it was a big industry, actually the organisations were relatively small. Uh, and there's a, there's a lack of commonality around reference terms. So for legal itself, we all know what best endeavours versus reasonable endeavours mean. We all know what the definition of a person means. All of that's really defined. You think of legal as a business, that's not so defined. Mm. Do we mean price? Do we mean cost? Do we mean delivery or do we mean technology? What do those things mean? So I'll give you a classic example. Uh, one of the core elements of the Bionic Lawyer uh, is um, when we say empowering people, what do we mean? What do we mean about empowering young professionals? And the key thing for empowering young professionals is have access to the data they need. It's to have a clear objective. 
be able to bring the be the, their best selves to the solution, right? So they should be able to operate without fear of bias or favour. Um, but what does that really mean? So the, the purpose of the Bionic Lawyer is, is, is really, first of all, to welcome all individuals in. The second thing is to actually look at individuals or organisations in three groups. There are the providers of legal services, and I say that in the widest sense. Mm -hmm. There are the consumers of legal services, that's in the widest sense. And there are freshers, new people coming to the industry. Um, let's create a series of tools where we have a common reference point so that you and I, when we're talking about X, can mean the same thing. Mm. So when we're saying cost, we mean cost. When we're saying price, we mean price. Let's have a common understanding. So it's really about taking the territorialism out of the industry and actually looking at truly collaborating mm. through a kind of common approach to how mm. we talk about things. You mentioned you know, bringing people together and true inclusivity. Um, before the podcast was, uh, before we started, we were talking about, you know, um, collaboration and of different people of different backgrounds. Do you think that legal engineers, does it mean coders, does it mean lawyers, or do you think perhaps lawyers could learn to code themselves and that sort of element yes. would be gone? So some lawyers will learn to code. Yeah. Absolutely. Some coders may learn the law. But if you look at any large team, and team dynamics are important. We're actually doing some data science work around teams at the moment. If you look at any team, you require diversity, mm. right? Things are more impactful when you bring a diverse mm. set of skills, backgrounds, understanding, references yeah. to a problem. So it'd be, it's great. If a lawyer wants to learn to code, that'd be great. But a lawyer learning to code will never be as good as a coder. Like a coder yeah. learning to do law will never be as good as... A lawyer. One of the one of the interesting things, actually, we talk about uh, in the Bionic Lawyer is the need for spanners, and what we mean by that is a people that are able to bring those two disciplines together. And and in so many ways, that's the kind of rarest time. But if you look at Jobs, mm. Jobs brought design and technology technologies together. That's why he was so successful. Um, so you know, yes, lawyers can code. What they certainly need to be cognizant of is why coding is important and what are the core requirements of and opportunities from coding. Mm. Uh, but I would suggest probably you need coders, lawyers, you know, legal architects, mm. legal engineers, yeah. data scientists to come together. So at the very least, you need lawyers to kind of, as you say, understand what it is, why, what you could get from it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's a mission of KIPS to create perhaps the, the translators between the lawyers and the, and the technologists yeah. and, and, and the scanners. And I think one of the nice things is that, you know, years ago you did a law degree because you wanted to become a lawyer. Mm. Doing a law degree is a fantastic discipline to learn. Right? It, it, it brings so many skill sets. And actually doing a law degree and then going and doing, you know, a master's in data science, we're going to do it. I think that will be an interesting development yeah. to move on to. Um, the other thing is, obviously, increasingly, we're going to see uh, the introduction of kind of systems that don't need code. So mm -hmm. we, we've got a tool here. It was developed in Germany uh, called Brighter, which yeah. is B-R-Y-T-E-R. Uh, you don't need to be able to code. Now, can you build the most advanced systems on it? Of course you mm -hmm. can't. Can you build a really clever set of Q&As that is interactive for the consumer of that product? 
Absolutely. And all you need to be able to do is build a flowchart. Mm. Do, do you think that if, for example, you had a great idea um, and, you know, why not just, you know, get someone who can code and build that solution for you and make it, you know, a solution that the firm builds rather than use this sort of platform? Yeah, I think it depends on what you need. So there are legal tech solutions. We just buy products that are in the market. Mm. Um, there are legal tech solutions where we buy the product and we bespoke or we adapt mm. it. But there are a number of legal products that we've invested in and we've built ourselves. Mm. Um, partly that's, does it exist already? That's a big question. Partly that's because is the legal tech, you know, back to that kind of collaboration example, is the legal tech a single intersection point in our process? Mm. If so, buy it. Is it a core element of the delivery of our process? If the answer to that is yes, you probably want to own it. Right. Great. So you mentioned data science, you know, a few times. Uh, well, m many of us may have heard of Moneyball. Yeah. Um, we understand that data science is powerful, but what sort of data are law firms, you know, looking to, to get and how can we best leverage that data to, you know, give the best solution for our clients? Yeah. So this is my current preoccupation. Right? Mm. I spent most of my time thinking about this. The first thing I, is I think it's, it's useful to think about data for law in two broad camps. There's your business of law data. Mm -hmm. What work do we do for who? How much does it cost? Who's doing it? Where are they based? All of those questions. Yeah. Um, how much does it cost? Um, and then there's your practice of law data. Just to give you a broad idea, if I look at our, if I look at systems that we have, if I look at our business of law data, so us operating as a business, we've got about mm. eight terabytes of data. So it's chunky, but not huge. Mm. If I look at our practice of law data, and I tend to think Outlook is probably the best example of that because uh, one piece of technology lawyers all know how to use is email. 95% of everything we do as lawyers goes through email. There is uh, metadata, the to, the from, the how. There is the contextual data in the body of the email. And there's your attachment, which I call dark data. That's 620 terabytes of data. Right? So we're looking at a, almost a times eight magnitude, yeah. um, which is which is fascinating. If you if you ask me about data science, there are the, you know on the business of law there is how can I improve the outcomes of us as a business to drive better outcomes for the individuals who work for us mm. or for our clients in terms of how they receive what we do. Sure. Um, so we are looking at predicting which of our clients are likely to grow and what do we need to do to encourage that growth. Uh -huh. We built a predictive model on that last year. Uh, we're building a predictive pricing model. Uh, you know, so if, if the partner can answer 10 questions about a project, can we come up with a predictive price? We're looking at team dynamics. Uh, there's a lot of interesting work around team. You know, Moneyball is it's interesting because in, in baseball, like cricket, you have a single interaction point. Mm -hmm. So everything can be measured around that single, sure. single interaction point. What's really interesting is the stuff they're doing with the NBA at the moment, mm -hmm. which is around complex systems where everything is, is fluid. Yeah. And how do you look at not just interaction plays, but the personalities and, and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And team dynamics. We're doing. A, we're starting to do some work around strength-based analyses of people in teams. One of the really interesting things about the MBA work is um, 
there is a maximum number of stars you can have on a team to food mm. provided performance. So yeah. the idea that you buy the best players in the world and you put them on the court doesn't work. Mm. 50 to 60% of the team is optimum for being stars. Up to 50%, you see it rise. 60%, it drops off again because of egos, personalities, yeah. all of those things. Think about that in a law firm context where we go out and we hire the best lawyers all the time and we put them in a room. Is that the best way of delivering a solution? Actually, do we have to think about different kinds of capability? How does that work then with the data scientists? So there's going to be some interesting work around that. If I then look at the practice of law side, um, we have 620 terabytes of data, right? We're operating in 30-odd countries, 50-odd offices. Um, you know, we probably are covering, by dollar spend, 80% of the global legal market. So we see more things in more places than most other organizations. We should be able to predict legal trends based on what we see. Now, individually, if you go and ask a partner, say, hey, what's going to happen tomorrow? They can say, well, look, based on my experience. But one, that's based on their experience, not the collective experience. Equally, you know, they only see it for a period of time or to a specific question. So we're starting to look on the practice of law data um, and we, we're sponsoring a doctoral student to work on this with us. How can we map, mine and build predictive models around where law is going? You're talking about people dynamics. Does that mean that these sort of things that you're working on, will that in, get involved in recruitment down the line? Yeah, ultimately, you know, data is really interesting. So if you ask me today, looking at the legal industry as a whole, based on data, what makes a successful law firm partner? Mm -hmm. It's a white man who went to a top university because yeah. data-wise, that is, by scale, the biggest source. And of course, we know that's utter rubbish. Mm. Um, what makes a good lawyer or what makes a good partner is actually based on a whole bunch of things, but we don't necessarily have that data in a recognisable mm. way. And it's certainly not a demographic. So if we can build skills or strengths-based analysis and then you are able to build some kind of testing around that. That certainly will go, I think, to changing how we recruit, how we develop, how we move people through through the uh, through the organisation. And I think that if, as a business, you're starting to operate more more effectively, that might you know have a, a synergistic effect on how you use your data and collect the data and all those. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think one of the things is data becomes a yeah. virtuous circle, right? right? Um, Great. So talking about doing things differently, uh, Hogan Laws recently acted for a South Korean conglomerate facing allegations from the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, which re required viewing, I think, 26 million documents. Yeah. And around 4 million of those documents were searchable, uh, were written in Korean script. How did, yeah. how did you sort of deal with that, um, you know, when you were faced with that problem? Uh, so, so, you know, going back to buy dollar spend, um, the two biggest legal markets in the world are the U.S. and the U.K., mm -hmm. And they collectively represent about 55% of the global legal market. If you then look at, in other jurisdictions, how much stuff is written under New York or London law, we're talking probably up to 80% of the legal market. Mm -hmm. As a result, most legal technology is, is English language based. Mm -hmm. uh, because you write it in English language based, actually conversion to any Latin script language is not that difficult. Conception. You need to train it, you need a data set, but actually it's not that difficult. Yeah. 
When you then look at character-based languages, so Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Arabic, uh, even Russian, uh, Greek, uh, the, the underlying systems don't work. Mm. Uh, so what we had to do here was to find almost a kind of automated conversion methodology to convert a Korean language into something that the machines could read. Right. Uh, so we used uh, what we called a, a tokenist approach. So you created tokens. Mm. Um, you created tokens that uh, represented uh, Korean characters that were then readable by machine. And the kind of classic model of that is, is called uh, character-to-vector. Okay. It's, it's, it, and in effect, actually, it's a bit like facial recognition technology. Mm. So facial recognition technology works on uh, image to vector. So it creates, you know, your eyes, your nose, your mouth into numerical representations, okay. tokens, sure. and then it searches those tokens and then converts it back into a face. It was a similar concept with the mm. language. Fantastic. So we're wrapping up soon. We've got three questions that we ask to all of our podcasters. The first is, what is the biggest obstacle that, if improved, would make your job easier or more impactful? I think uh, that we need greater diversity in the management of the legal industry. Mm. Um, and I mean that professionally, background-wise, whatever. I think you know, one of the biggest challenges is that when you bring a bunch of people who have been largely educated at the same places and from the same backgrounds, mm. they kind of all think the same. Right. Secondly, tell us about a highlight in the past three years from working at Hogan Lovells um, any you know fun deals, memorable moments, um, or perhaps something that excites you about your work today? Yeah, so um, I think the two so highlights from the past is I, I've got two people that worked for me that when uh, I started, one of them wasn't here and I recruited them, but I recruited them for a relatively junior role. Mm. The other person was in a relatively junior role. They now have global leadership roles. Wow. So I love the fact that in three years I've seen two people who we've invested some time in, mm. grow and, and, and seize that initiative. That's that's absolutely fantastic. Um, in terms of what excites me most is the power of data. Data is uh, a wonderfully powerful tool. Of course, it's only predictive. And one of the things I remember about being predictive is it's a prediction. It's not what will happen. Mm. Um but actually the power of data when you apply it uh, to, to what you do can be incredibly powerful. Fantastic. And finally, where can we find you or learn more about your work? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. Right. Uh, uh, LinkedIn more than Twitter. Okay. Um, you can look on LinkedIn. We have a Barnet Lawyer group. Mm. You can join up, join the, uh, join the Barnet Lawyer group. Uh, LinkedIn, uh, I normally publish kind of three things one are kind of thought pieces where something just occurs to me i post it mm -hmm. secondly is my reading list i always post what books i'm reading at the yeah. time uh, and the third thing are pictures of meat fantastic Stephen, we look forward to seeing you soon thank you so much